0: Dr. Ethel Tungohun, an associate professor of politics at York University. This is Academic Antes. One of the norms that I just don't understand in academia is how everyone seems to be reluctant to talk about money. Someone once told me, in fact, that academics would rather talk about their sex lives than talk about their salaries. So in today's episode, we talk about one of the biggest taboos in academia, money. In recent months, we've seen an increase in the number of PhD students, postdocs, and faculty members drawing attention to how their stipends, fellowship funds, and salaries barely allow them to make ends meet. They reject this idea of academia as a calling that demands sacrifice. They seek better compensation for the work that they do. More importantly, they rebel against bourgeois academic norms. They refuse to be quiet about the economic inequalities that they are facing. My guest in today's episode, Dr. Rebecca Major, has been vocal about inequities in academia, including economic inequities. I asked Dr. Major, or Becky for short, to talk to me about her experiences working multiple jobs in grad school, taking on debt, and I also asked her for her opinion on ways to reform this system. Enjoy. I am so pleased to have my really good friend, Dr. Rebecca Major, who I've known now for, I guess, two years, right, Becky? Yeah, about that. Right. So Becky and I, you know, have been talking a lot about finances and graduate school and how we don't really want to talk about finances and academia and we don't know quite why that is. But before we jump into our conversation, I'll have Auntie Becky introduce herself and say hi to
1: the pod. Hi, Auntie Becky. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always so terrible at introducing myself because I never remember okay. what I should be saying or what I should talk about. So. Yeah, well,
0: we'll just leave it as you know. You're a friend of the pod. You're also an assistant professor of political science at the University of Windsor, and you're amazing. So, yeah, is that sound okay? Oh, you're so kind. Yeah, awesome. so yeah, so just jumping right into this, I guess my first question for you is, you know, can you talk about? money and academia. And, you know, when we were having an offline conversation, we were talking about why, well, we were wondering why is it that academics don't like talking about money and academics specifically don't like talking about money in graduate school. Do you know why that is? And can you share a little bit about your experiences navigating financial concerns during graduate
1: school? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I was going to university, I was living in an area of Saskatoon in a little 500 square Mm -hmm. foot house with my dad. And it was a very big Mm. stigma for him. He was very embarrassed about being poor. It was something he didn't want to talk about. It was a reason he didn't want people to come to the house because he didn't want to see people in our tiny little house, right? And even before that, when we finally made it out of an apartment and into a duplex before our tiny little house, it was still something that was a source Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. embarrassment for him. But at the same time, for me to be in university Mm -hmm. was so huge, right? So we just Mm pulled our sources together. I got my measly $535 a month from student loans to chip in. And we just made our way, but it was something that he was really embarrassed about. And in the early two thousands, before the economic crisis, I, you know, would tell him, "I'm like, you know what, Dad? Mm-hmm. We're in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Everybody's poor. Yes. It's okay, mm-hmm. right?" <laughs> and it's and he was like, "Oh, well, it was still hard for him." And I mean, mm-hmm. that was the reality mm-hmm. for us back then as a family unit, and we just kept mm-hmm. it really private and other people in our family were embarrassed after to say, well, we didn't know you were struggling so hard. And it was like, well. Yeah.
0: And I think that's one of the things that I want us to demystify during this conversation, right? Let's talk about money and let's talk about the fact that not everyone in academia came from the same starting point. How did, you know, these financial realities
1: affect you when you were in graduate school? Yeah. So when I was in my MA program, I had one small little bursary the howard adams award that dr lala birdie nominated me for otherwise i ended up with like a 14 page cv because i had to hustle because that was my only opportunity to try and do something to shore things up because when i was in my master's i didn't Mm -hmm. go for the student loan i worked a lot of bingos Dad did a lot of odd jobs. Saskatoon had a factory called Mitchell's that we ate a lot of sausage for many years. And then when I got into my PhD program, Mm, I was already mm -hmm, a sessional. mm -hmm. And so I was a sessional during the Mm -hmm. fall winter months. And my partner Mm -hmm. was a stay-at-home dad because of the way the finances worked for us. We couldn't afford childcare and for him to work. (laughs) So he stayed home and then in the summers, he would go and do contracts like carpet cleaning and I would be on EI in the summer. And then I entered my PhD and the stipend was half of what I was making oh, as a sessional. Really? Yeah. So I couldn't give up the sessional position for the stipend right. and I had to choose. Right. Because for PhD programs in Canada, for our listeners, right?
0: When you have your PhD stipend, your PhD scholarship, you can't take it if you're also working. You have to basically agree not to work during your PhD. Is that right, Becky?
1: Yeah. So, and that just financially, we had a house, our first house in Saskatoon. We could not afford to change our economic circumstances that way. And so for my undergrad, I had a mm-hmm. I had a student loan. I came out of that student loan with a $35,000 mm-hmm. mm-hmm. debt. And then in the PhD, after the first year or two, we were struggling so much. I went back and started getting my student loan again. And so I came out of my PhD with a six-figure student loan. And people say, oh, well, you shouldn't take on debt in grad school. But there are some of us that we would never have made it out of our Mm 500-square-foot house had we not Mm -hmm. taken on that Mm -hmm. debt. But that changes the playing field immensely Mm -hmm. once you are in a different position because you're coming into this now with different baggage than other people namely a student loan payment that's bigger than a mortgage
0: payment. Absolutely. And I think kind of just going back to what you were saying where people were like, well, you shouldn't take on debt when you're in graduate school. I mean, how did it make you feel when people would say that to you, knowing that the student loan that you received was so crucial in helping you make ends meet and also help you not to have to take on another job, right? On top of all of the other jobs that you were doing, as well as, you know, doing your PhD studies and your PhD research. So, when people were saying that,
1: were you like, dude, no? Or did you just kind of laugh it off? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I would just either laugh it off or I'd just be quiet in embarrassment that, you know, I didn't get all the scholarships. And I, I never had funding at all this scholarship to be able to do it. This is like all me, almost entirely all me, with like two tiny little bursaries. I got about an $800 bursary from the Maintenance Nation of Ontario mm-hmm. right at the end. Of my PhD to help with a semester of tuition, well, two semesters of tuition to help me get through because I I had used up all of my room for student Mm -hmm. loans. I capped out. Yeah, before I finished. You know,
0: one thing I kind of wanted to emphasize was it's not it's not it's not your fault, right? Like the scholarship, the stipend that all PhDs get in Canada is given with these kind of caveats saying that you can't work. A lot of people can't, can't accept that, right? Especially because, you know, you also had a kid, right? Like a lot of graduate students, you know, don't have kind of family obligations as well,
1: right? So it's not, I think it's systematically a problem. I think it's not on you. You know, and it's true. And then, you know, coming from not a big economic background, that also meant that I was coming from a background that I didn't have people to borrow money from to go to conferences. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a credit card to just throw like air travel on necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, because people who come from like lower economic circumstances, we don't come from Mm -hmm. huge credit Mm -hmm. scores, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so suddenly we're also expected to be traveling in spaces and whatnot that are really beyond mm-hmm. our means and beyond some of our own comfort zones mm-hmm. and experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: I think hearing you just say that makes me realize how disproportionately unequal it is in graduate school and also beyond that, because you mentioned, for example, conferences, right? And people are just like, well, you know what? Just put it on your credit card, right? And f- you'll pay it back when you get your your conference funding. Don't worry about that. But you're saying that not everyone has the advantage
1: of even being able to just throw it on the on a credit card or even borrowing money. Well, that's just it. And I mean, and it happens in so many different aspects when you when you are changing into a different life like I was fortunate to get into a home ownership program for low and middle income people Mm -hmm. in Saskatoon allowed me you know um something to be able to continue to be home ownership when I moved to Ontario because I came in right before a boom thankfully right otherwise I wouldn't be able to have a house right now but at the same time when I was dealing with mortgages and things and people and they were talking about okay well bridging and all these kinds of new ideas to me they're like well do you have can you just borrow five thousand from somebody don't you have family that has five thousand dollars i'm like no what like that was so outlandish to me it's like i don't even like to borrow five hundred dollars from somebody you know but to just be like oh yeah just ask your aunt if they can just like lend you five grand for you know this and that and whatever it's like who like i don't come Like, no, you know? I mean, I have one branch of family on my mom's side that does okay, I guess, but I don't really talk to them. What was it like then?
0: So, you know, you were in graduate school, you were sessionaling, you took on student loans. How did you
1: kind of balance doing all of that plus your PhD research? (laughs) Um, in my PhD program, I got very used to getting up at four thirty and five in the morning. Yeah. So I was about eight months pregnant when I defended mm-hmm. my master's. And then I took two years off working for the Métis Nation Saskatchewan. And then I started to look at going back into a PhD program. So my son was yeah. just a toddler, you know, a young child. And just, you know, it's the the people say, well, you sleep <laughs> when the baby sleeps. Well, you know what? I work when yeah. the baby sleeps, yeah. right? So... I got into the habit of, you know, being really productive early in the mornings, and then I could just, you know, have my normal day. And when the baby went to bed, I went to bed, (laughs) you know, no evenings for me. But that's okay, because even through that, I mean, I spent time Mm -hmm. elected, Um, I spent, I was working, I was a mom, and I still managed to do my PhD and get it completed within six years. That's amazing. I am in awe
0: of you. I mean, I think one question I had for you as well, going back to what you were saying earlier, is then you started as an assistant professor, but then you said earlier you had baggage that other
1: people didn't. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one day this summer, I was sitting down with a colleague. And I mean, I hear these things of parents who, people of parents, you know, they're they're children of parents who have Mm -hmm. been professors. Mm -hmm. And my parents' generation was the first generation in all of my families to really do anything in post-secondary. Mm-hmm. Like my dad had some field college. My mom went to teacher's college and was the first to have a university degree in my mm-hmm. m- mom's side of the family mm-hmm. in bishops. And so, I mean, there was there was some post-secondary. But for me, when I showed up at, at post-secondary, you know, I showed up because I knew that was what I was supposed to do. I showed up first year. I didn't understand what it meant that the person in front of the class was teaching me with a PhD. Oh, I really? No clue how to Mm -hmm. run the game, like none, right? I was living out West with my dad. My mom was in Ontario because her mom was older. Now my grandpa had passed and I just, you know, showed up and did what I thought was expected. So like, it's not to say that I wasn't totally inexperienced with post-secondary, but I really didn't know what I was supposed to be doing or what was expected of me. But then, so I'm sitting there with my friend this summer and she's talking about, she's, I'm at the very end of Gen X. When I was in high school, we used to call ourselves Gen X in the (laughs) 90s. We're not really, now we're like some bridge generation. But I was talking with somebody who's much at the other end of the Gen X. Her parents are professors. And like some of the things that I come with, with the student loans, with the inexperience, with not knowing how to navigate grant systems and all sorts of things like that, you know, it didn't even dawn on her because she came from parents who Mm -hmm, were professors. mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, Right. So, some of the baggage is the learning curves that we have to learn to navigate in these like foreign institutional systems that were so not built for many of us, like the institutional barriers. And I mean, I struggled so bad in my first year of university that most people would have dropped out. You know, instead, I spent four years clawing my average up to be able to get into a master's Mm -hmm. program. And I'm here because I refuse to take no for an answer and I made people take chances on me and say, no, just let me prove it, please just let me prove it. And because people let me prove it, I've managed to work my way to where I am today.
0: You know, for listeners, one of the studies that came out last year, and we'll link it into the show notes, is that I think a third of all professors have parents who are professors, right? So they understand the world that they're entering and they understand some of the norms. And so one of the things that's interesting, Becky, as you were talking about your friend is that she didn't even realize that things like student loans and things like learning all of these norms that are so normal to her is something that a lot of us have to claw our way into, right? We have to kind of figure things out. So you're talking about social situations. I mean, how are these social situations also, I guess, markers of class
1: privilege? (laughs) Um, well, honestly, you just need to go to a department Christmas party (laughs) that includes graduate students. Can you tell me more? What do you mean about that? (laughs) Okay, so I mean, honestly, I come from a place where most of my my Christmas parties in my home are like kitchen parties, right? Everybody's either in the kitchen or around (laughs) the food and there's music going and stuff and that's normal. But then you go to an academic Christmas party that might be in a fancy house on (laughs) Sass Crescent, let's say, right? The people that are clearly not used to the social environment are the people that are the small little circles clustered around the food table, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Or sitting off to the side that you would think of and you think of wallflowers, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And it takes a lot to just take that breath and dive in. For sure. And I think, you know, just as
0: hearing, as as you were kind of describing these social spaces, right? One of the things I remember most clearly, especially as a PhD student at the University of Toronto, is some of my peers knew what wine to order, right? (laughs) You know, they would actually like sniff the glass. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I don't, I don't know. My parents don't drink wine. This is not something that we talk about, right? And so little markers like that of, I think, class privilege or perhaps not even class privilege but it's it's kind of like a different cultural environment i think that kind of makes me realize too how how uncomfortable it can be for those of us who are first generation who who don't know our way around these circles right
1: that's just it right and so it creates such an unease and we hear a lot of um oh what is the word when you um when you're when you're feeling uh like you don't belong, the there's a term for it in academia. Like you feel um, like well, okay, an interloper, you feel like an outsider, you feel Yeah. It, it it's like you're
0: you're oh, transgressing? I'm,
1: I'm, just, I'm <laughs> throwing out words. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's the idea that it's like the imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's like first of all, I know lots of people experience mm-hmm. that. I know I do regularly, but I use that as a space for myself to check myself, right? right? Because I want to make sure that I'm always doing the best that I can for the spaces that I'm in and making sure that I'm doing things that are good for other people. But having all of this new like being one of those people that doesn't come from the backgrounds that are exposed to all this for generations, Mm. you know, I'm sure that must also compound on that imposter syndrome. And I know you've talked a little bit about that in previous podcasts of yours too. For sure. And I think one thing that,
0: you know, I'm trying to grapple with as well, even as we speak is figuring out why in academia talking about money is seen as such a big taboo. Even when talking about money with respect to negotiations, with respect to salary. I was talking to someone about this and they said, you know what? Academics would rather talk about their sex lives than talk about money. And I'm just like, that's so weird. <laughs> I don't know why. Do you, do you agree with that?
1: Well, and it's almost like there's like an unspoken rule that everybody just assumes everybody yes. has it. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's like, oh, well, let's go for lunch here and let's go do that and let's go do this. And it's like, I'm still budgeting like two takeouts a month just to make sure that we get breaks from cooking every night. You (laughs) know, yeah. I'm still counting as I put my food in the grocery cart, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know, and I'm still paying attention to those things because, I mean, again, I have a student loan that's, you know, like my payments are four figures a Mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's just those certain assumptions and you don't want to be like, Hey, I can't. But at the same time, you know, you get another guilt because for me, I see other students, people that are struggling, you know, that are doing financial fundraising and stuff. And I wish I was in a position that I could contribute more to that. Yeah but I feel guilty because I'm still paying for my own education. Yeah, but you shouldn't feel guilty, though. And I think what this conversation shows us is that
0: we do need to talk about financial privilege in academia, right? Like, even as professors, for God's sake, right? Because there's this assumption that, oh, well, all professors... on the sunshine list, which isn't true, right? Or that all professors have kind of attained this bougie lifestyle. And you're saying that "Mm, that's not actually true for for some professors, right?
1: And I mean, especially those that have had to, you know, work their way up, right? And that looks different for every single person. Just like my master's looked very different from my PhD. Unfortunately, my dad wasn't with me anymore when I did my Mm -hmm. PhD. It was something that he wanted to see me do. But, I mean, he shoveled horses. Right. <laughs> literally for, like, weekends and weekends and flooded community hockey rinks and did all sorts of things just to make sure my tuition was paid for my master's and doing everything he could to try and make sure I didn't have to take on more of a student loan mm-hmm, debt. hmm mm-hmm. You know, because, and to now coming through, I'm not going to say we're done, but coming through this pandemic, one thing that's been key for my son First of all, if he gets a free education because of my employment, he knows what that means and he's going to take it. And second, he's also seen that we struggled less than others Mm -hmm. because I had an education compared to where we started out before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though we weren't always doing the greatest during the pandemic because of student loans and things, we still found other ways to make sure that we were at least finding ways to give back. Mm -hmm. Whether it's every two weeks when I was at the grocery store and I was buying a couple of those like brown bag food bank thingies or whatever, right? Like... And found ways to put money into the local economy because there's always somebody that was still doing worse than we were. And I think
0: this goes to show, you know, that common adage saying that people who did not come from financial privilege are actually more generous than people who were really well off. Right. I have two more questions for you. <laughs> the first question yeah. is the podcast has a lot of Ph.D. students, graduate students and also early career scholars listening who are feeling like they have this imposter syndrome and how talking about money and outing themselves as not having as much money might even kind of bolster their imposter syndrome. So what advice would you give people who perhaps were in your place, like when you were in your PhD, people who have to hustle, who have to think about, you know, counting their money, right. To make sure that they make
1: ends meet. What advice would you give them? Honestly, be proud that you're working as hard as you are and you're doing it anyway. Mm. Right, I wish I was less embarrassed at certain times, and I know that comes from trying to overcome the stigmas that I was raised in. That it was like, you know, and it was supposed to be a source of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. No, it is a reaction to colonial institutions and systems of oppression, and people who are working to overcome them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and it, yeah, you know, sometimes we have to work harder. But one thing that I wanted to make sure that if that was me. I don't turn around and say, well, cause I had it hard. You have to have <laughs> yes, it hard. Yeah. No, no, that, you know, that's a bad attitude to have in my opinion, because that's not making better space for other people. Mm-hmm. And If we don't start talking about it, how are other people gonna see that there is space for that? Absolutely, and I think one of the things that
0: I kind of wanted to end on, and this is another question I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the ways through which we can shift these structures of power that make it so hard for people without financial privilege to rise up? And I'm thinking about a lot of the labor actions taking place within university sectors, right? Who, people who are drawing attention to the lack
1: of funding that graduate students have, right? Well, you know from working with me in other spaces that I like to push back in this space. Mm-hmm. I support the fact that we need to not be penalizing. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of students in the past, especially when I was in Saskatchewan, that came with ban funding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you wanted to be able to reward a student, some bans will actually penalize a student financially for receiving an award. And it's the same with student loans. Like, if I accidentally went and picked up a small job, suddenly I would have lost some student loans, uh. right? Like, it just was... These loopholes to keep people poor Mm -hmm. are awful. We need to keep fighting to push back on those types of things with those funding loopholes and stuff that people use. Uh, But then people like myself, I've seen people shame each other on social media about how much they pay students. What? What do you mean? Like, oh, well, I only pay my students this because they're only worth this because they haven't earned, you know, and all these kinds of debates. (laughs) And it's like, no, 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 (laughs) no. let's take a a point here that we are working with people that are human beings and I work really hard to make sure that I'm paying as best as I can within my institutional limits like I I came from a university that and it's just it's set up in the institution you only you know get 17 something an hour or whatever well I make sure that I'm doing over 20 dollars an hour I won't say because I don't want to, you know, out everybody all over social media and things. But I do make sure that I'm trying to pay as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And when I put that in my grant applications or any of it, I mean, so far nobody has said no to me. You know, and I try to make it so at least it makes it worth their time to maximum maximum their hours working for me over taking a, a different type of employment.
0: And I think that's such a good point. I think for listeners who are professors who do have access to grants, and I've worked with Becky on grants, right, where we kind of build in a decent, a living wage for our research assistants or graduate and undergraduate research assistants, right? Who cares if university norms are like $15, $16, $17 an hour? You don't have to follow that, right? Would you be able to live with $15 an hour? No, you won't. So I think finding ways to kind of User privilege through, for example, writing up grants to to build in a higher salary for graduate students. That's something we could do as well. I also think I don't know. Thinking about this, and you know, thinking about your tweet actually, that kind of made me think. Oh, you're a good person to talk about this. Talking about student loans too, right? And how student loans are so important and so vital in helping PhD students go through the program. I think you know, just kind of highlighting that this is a reality that a lot of graduate students are facing, that they have to resort to student loans. I think that's that's an important way to to draw attention to the issue, too. Do you remember your tweet, Becky? I thought it was brilliant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just remember seeing because it, it was a reaction. I will say that that was a day that it was a bit of a reaction. And I think it was about the fact that a lot of the student loans in the states mm-hmm were being wiped. Yeah, yes. And, you know, and there was a lot of people, comments from the peanut gallery, as they say, where people aren't coming from lived experience about that. And it's like, until you've had to take the student loan... To change your economic circumstance. And demographically, the only way I would have changed my circumstances is through education. Yeah. Right? When you look at the stats for as women become educated in the income salary, and, you know, especially when you look at Indigenous women and the Métis statistics and stuff, and how our employment increases our standard of living and things. And you look at people like Sen, who's looked at the impact of educating women and the well-being in families. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's important to do what you need to do, and not listen to other people who are not paying your bills. That's why I
0: really like your tweet, actually, because I think, yes, now that I remember it, it was a reaction to some of these naysayers, people who were kind of judging others for taking on student loans. And I think in this Twitter thread, and I'll find it and I'll link it to the show notes, you were very clearly said, I took a student loan and look where I am right now right? Don't judge others, right? If you haven't traveled the road uh, that they walked on. So
1: I really love that. Uh, Any final words, Becky, to our listeners? Honestly, I just want to thank you for having this space and talking about this and inviting me into the program. Because, you know, it is important because it is part of our reality and how we exist in these spaces. And there's a lot of dimensions. To newer academics coming in. And you and I work in spaces where we try really hard to break barriers so that we can create more opportunities and things for people. And those people coming in, we need to consider. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's such a
0: beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. As I reflect on my conversation with Becky, thinking about all the ways that we can work towards systemic change, it's important for us to act collectively. Just look at the over 48,000 academic workers in the University of California system carrying out the largest labor action in the United States this year. It's truly inspiring to witness. All of us here at Academic Anties support the Academic Workers Striking and encourage all of you listeners to sign the petition supporting academic workers at the University of California, which we link to in the show notes. And that's Academic Anties. If you want to get in touch, contact us on Twitter at AcademicAnte or email us at podcast at If you like what you're hearing, visit academicantiescom support to find out how to support this podcast. This includes becoming a Patreon supporter, which goes right into the production of this podcast. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.